Welcome to our 16th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Tanisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO of the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we gather, the Wajuk people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We meet today here in Fremantle, literally metres from where the Wajuk people and the English colonists first laid eyes on each other. Since then, Fremantle has become a historic meeting place to many people from a range of diverse cultural backgrounds and places. Yet we still have such a long way to go to create fairer and more representative workplaces and to manage culture and diversity in a positive way into the future. We have an extraordinary panel of individuals today who are committed to creating better understanding and spaces that foster and allow people to be respected and be themselves. And I thank you all so much in advance for being here with us. Given we have four on the panel this morning, I think we'll get straight into it. And I'd love to introduce our first panellist, Tony Shaw. Indigenous Service Owner and Managing Director, Tony Shaw is a Wongatha person from the Northern Eastern Goldfields region. Tony is a leader in the community and able to provide a wealth of knowledge and cultural understanding of Aboriginal people, which is clearly evident in his negotiating skills and his public speaking. As a speaker, Tony is dynamic, engaging and thought provoking. His ability to reach a wide audience and range of people has earned him the reputation of being one of our greatest speakers and Australia's leading Aboriginal speakers. Over the past 10 years, Tony has presented to more than 100,000 people locally, regionally, nationally and internationally. Tony, thanks so much again for being here today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. 2020 has brought a lot of focus on conversations that have been going on for decades. From your perspective, have we got anywhere through these conversations and do you think anyone truly understands reconciliation? Well, look at how it's, uh, look, I'd like to pay my respects to the Wajak people. I have a very strong affiliation with them, even though I'm a Wongo person. But I do get asked that quite often. Um, and if I look back on my life and in terms of my experiences, bearing in mind I'm no expert, um, there has been a, a quantum shift. And, uh, and that quantum shift is very much about the positioning of others prepared to sit down and listen to the stories of others. You know what I mean? And that's why, in terms of the reconciliation process, I focus more on conciliation. Um, that uh, relationship starts from sharing stories. Um, I look at reconciliation, and of all the people that I've spoken to around the place, and it's been quite a few, diverse marketplace, commercial, otherwise. Um, and I ask, does anybody here understand or know anything about this so-called process of reconciliation that we're going through in this great country? And not one person has put their hand up. Uh, which has been quite surprising and I've thought about that for some time and uh, I've come to an understanding that at the end of the day uh, it is a simple issue of how is it that you can understand or know anything about uh, somebody else if you don't even know their stories mm -hmm. and people are starting to listen a lot more today in order to get to that point of understanding and if we go to another step and then consider a, a strong relationship if we have a bust up from that point well then let's consider reconciliation. I think we put the heart, uh, cart before the horse. Uh, there's a lot of rap plans out there that people really don't understand them. I presented just recently to a major council here um, in South Perth and um, I said to them, look, I'm really looking for an entity that can just step up and be strong enough to say that we're going to be doing a conciliation plan as opposed to a reconciliation one. Uh, because if you knock on the doors of every single constituent in this street, street alone and ask them whether they'll participate in reconciliation, they'll look at you and say, I don't know what you're talking about. 
But if you say we're doing a process, a program of conciliation, where we're starting to listen to the stories of everybody else, be they Aboriginal or otherwise, they'll step up and say, look, that's interesting. That's not intimidating to me as a human being. And now, oh, look, I would possibly be a part of that. So we've got to understand that in terms of humanity, we need to do things right, um, rather than do things that actually sound good. Uh, that's not even the case here in Australia. A lot of people get uh, part of this reconciliation process and it's a chin-chin mm. situation and then that's it, you know, don't bring anybody home here for a barbecue. Yeah. It, that's, that's the question, you know. So I presented just recently to a major mining forum at Fraser's Restaurant and it was had about 300 odd people there and a very good friend of mine was in the panel and him and I would work very, very uh, uh, hard on realising an arrangement, an agreement with the Ngadju people out of Norseman and uh, to realise the Nova project running, and people really don't know too much about that, but it's one of the biggest sulphide nickel deposits in the known world. Mm. It's a billion dollar project, you know? And we got this uh, process up and running in less than eight months. It got a billion dollar project over the line, and Mark actually said to everybody there, all of you are carrying on about native title, but put your hand up here, any one of you that's actually met an Aboriginal person. Mm. It's, not, it's not hard. We did a, uh, an MO uh, where we went in, and no lawyers, zip that and use this. Mm -hmm. And we got that agreement done in under, in under eight months. So listening and truly listening, not just waiting for a gap to say what we want to say, is extremely important. And it's that listening element that is, is, is the crux of everything. People are more, all the more open to listening if what they're listening about isn't intimidating. So it's very much about conciliation. And those stories, I think it's so true in what you say in any form of diversity. We all come with stories and I think deep down people just want to be heard and in our workplaces where we don't give people the opportunity to be heard, Absolutely. then um, we, we create this uncertainty and it's very easy to judge someone when you haven't heard their yeah, story. Absolutely. And look, I came across an article in the Australian newspaper the other day and that's a great medium. Mm. I don't know why it comes 14 foot wide in 10 separate sections. <laughs> but anyway, go, go figure. Um, and it was about a particular novelist that actually wrote a book on happiness and it went, rose to the top of the New York sellers list. And this lady, she said, look, I'm no expert, but I think I understand happiness for what it is. And it's made up of four elements. And uh, was, the first was a sense of belonging, knowing who you are, where you're from and where you fit. Uh, very important, very important. And secondly, uh, a, a sense of purpose. So that you know when you get up in the morning, particularly now that it's cold, uh, why you're getting up in the morning. And uh, the, the third one was having uh, passion for that purpose. So when you get up in the morning, you don't just kind of get up, you actually jump out of bed and go, wow, there's another day ahead of us here and I've got this passion for what I do. Um, and do you know what the fourth one was? And it was very, very interesting. And she's right. It was another, nothing other than storytelling. Having the ability to espouse others who and what you are where you're from, your sense of purpose and why you have passion for that purpose, so that when they're listening, they're not intimidated and they say, well, oh, you know, I like what Tony's saying here. And if I so choose, I'll onboard myself with that, with that process that he's involved with, you know. So a lot of us forget that storytelling stuff. I think we've got that as Aboriginal people, same as others. Uh, but I think where we've gone uh, array is the issue of belonging that's been taken from us, not really understanding that purpose and of course, passion doesn't come with that.
and then and not having permission or a space to tell the story. Absolutely, um, as well. that's why yeah. it's extremely important to have spaces where there's a lot more storytelling going on, and people take it for granted. But it's very much lies the, lays the foundation for great relationships moving forward. It's a wonderful way to start, Tony. In fact, one of the questions I was going to ask you was around what conversations we need to have, and I think you've almost answered that in, in the conversations we need to have are the storytelling to enable people to create a sense of space and create a sense of belonging. Then we all come with almost that, that ability to understand each yeah, other. Yeah, and just, just quickly, Australiana is very, very much about, and I like having a corona, there's no doubt about it, <laughs> but it's the, you, know, you look at the um, uh, Australiana positioning of pubs, you go in there and every single person that you meet when you go in there has a story to tell. Uh, and we forget that and we need to get heart back to that a lot more. Absolutely. Wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. Kaya Tui. Tui is a proud, passionate Yamaji Noongar woman who grew up in Geraldton and Kalgoorlie. Currently, she's the Cultural Engagement and Strategy Officer at Reconciliation WA. Or maybe we should call it Conciliation WA, Tony. <laughs> um, his, her previous roles include Project Coordinator from Another View, Project Indigenous Literacy Officer with the State Library of Western Australia and the Investigating Officer of the Ombudsman of Western Australia. She has travelled and met with Indigenous people and communities throughout Western Australia and worked in administrative investigation where she has witnessed time and time again what it is like for vulnerable people to try and navigate government and the institutions that we create. To Australia has the oldest living culture on our doorstep in the world. What steps do you take to work, walk in both worlds and what can we learn from this? I think probably the hardest process of that reconciliation journey is, you know, as Tony was saying, understanding someone else's stories. And in some senses, as an Aboriginal person, is with the difficulties we've gone through, it's sort of easier because we know our culture, so we've got to share it with other people. So what we're asking is non-Aboriginal people to also walk in two worlds. And I think non-Aboriginal people might not have got that part of the equation. It's not just about actively listening, it's about having a little bit of ownership of the country you live in. We should be a really proud culture like they are in New Zealand. It's just taken for granted that it's just embedded in society. Everyone learns Maori language, it's part of their culture, it's completely embedded. And so I think that's part of the equation that I think we sort of miss in Australia is that we should be proud of this country, everyone. Everyone that lives here and even that new person that comes here should take that on, should really start to learn culture and learn those two stories. I think that's the important bit. I mean, I'm always going to be on this journey. I'm always going to learn new stories. I'm, you know, like I'm a kid in this space, really. But, you know, I'm like Tony. I think learning everyone's stories is the most important, important part of that process. I mean, I'm still going out on things. I'm working on a documentary at the moment and I'm still finding these most fascinating information that I just... If I wasn't, you know, a bit of a collector of stories, as I like to say, then, you know... I don't know if you know this. If you come to Pop's place, my mum was there and her nickname was Talk It Over. Mm -hmm. You know, so we come from a whole, that was a nickname that her parents gave her. And that was the, you know, that's, that's sort of the legacy that my mum's given me. You know, don't be afraid to talk, but, you know, make sure you really actively listen. It's really and important. share and understand. And I think you're right in that we have so much to learn in some of those moments. So I remember doing some um, work for Woodside out in Robin one day and I was sitting on a veranda having a, a yarn to one of the elders and she, her partner unfortunately got sort of hit by a car at the moment that I was on the veranda and just watching the entire community come around and gather and support 
um, that person through what was a really difficult time was such an incredible story for me that stays forever. And it, it's almost that other side of, you know, when people go, oh, well, you know, the down tools or this happens or that happens. There's always another side to that story. And I think being able to hear it and understand it and being able to walk in that, I feel like I had a unique insight and opportunity just from being in a, in a certain place at a certain time. But very few people, as Tony said, get that opportunity to understand and learn. And what they do understand and learn, they're hearing from the news or from TV rather than from people themselves. So I think there's a huge amount of learning on that walking in, in shoes and also, understanding within our workplaces, we have to give people space to tell their stories. They don't just naturally, you know, come out. You can't just expect someone to come to walk one day in the tea room and go, hey, you know, this is who I am. Um, we need to create those spaces to allow people to have those conversations. It's fantastic and, and lots of learning there. And Tim, I think we've started with some topics fairly uh, close and passionate to your heart. Um, Tim has a, a passion for reconciliation, which he describes as the process of healing and building trust after people have hurt each other. He's working, uh, been working in community development since the 1980s and in Aboriginal reconciliation since the 1990s. In particular, Tim focuses on what we as non-Aboriginal people can do to build better relationships with Aboriginal people. Tim, you've played a significant role in the development of the City of Fremantle's Reconciliation Action Plan, and you're also the author of two books, Weaving Tapestries, the new handbook for developing community, and Finding Harrigan, an analogy about listening to each other across uh, our differences. Tim, you sent me a little piece a few months back that you'd written about antisocial behaviour in Fremantle. Uh, you entitled it Antisocial or Pro-Social, and maybe the choice is ours. Can you talk a bit about what pro-social behaviour might look like? I was just thinking story is a big part of it. I, that wasn't where I was going to start, but um, story is such a big part of it. And um, I fully support um, Tony's... Um, concerns about reconciliation light. You know, if it's a pretend job, it's, it almost does damage. But so for getting real, we've got to really, really hear each other. Um, and the quote that I used to keep on my wall in the early days was from a, some American woman, uh, engrave this upon my heart, there's no one you cannot love once you've heard their story. And if we turn away from each other's stories, we can't possibly start to build the relationship we need. So the whole sort of story thing is, is really resonating with me. Um, the pro-social thing, it actually, you know, I was reading a lot when I came to Fremantle about antisocial behaviour, and I was sort of walking down the street thinking, where is it? You know, where is this antisocial behaviour? Um, and, and, I, and I don't want to minimise, people need to live in safety, so that's absolutely, we should all try and live in safety. Um, but the question for me is, how do we create safety in our world? And a lot of the response to any uh, activity that is different to ours, even kind of sitting on the grass or asking for a bit of money or something like that, tends to be we need more policing, we need more um, uh, security guards and so on and so forth. And <clears throat> it struck me that actually what we know about how to keep ourselves safe is that we need to actually have a sense of belonging. And there's a very, very simple dynamic that uh, if people treat me like I don't belong, it's way more likely that I'm going to feel like I don't belong. If I feel like I don't belong, it's way more likely that I'm going to act like I don't belong. Then the cycle continues if people use that as another reason to treat me like I don't belong. Um, and what I thought was, what, we're in a city. We're in a vibrant city. Vibrant cities attract people from all over the world, but from every background as well. 
and that will include drug users, and that will include people who are angry, and that will include people with mental health issues. What if our whole approach to making us safe was that if every one of us played our small part in being pro-social in our attitude to those people, rather than antisocial in our attitude towards those people, which is turning away or, um, or you know, calling the guards or, or whatever. I, am I allowed to swear on this? Or <laughs> it's just I heard something that almost broke my heart. I, I, I didn't see the person. I just heard him. He was clearly being confronted by a security guard inside a, a closed car park. <clears throat> and he just said, fuck off. I'm not hurting anyone. And it almost broke my heart, the tone in his voice. And I thought, well, you know, how, well, how could we actually greet that person and say, how you going, mate? And, and some security guards are awesome at this, but why can't we all, as Fremantle people, say, I'm going to do everything I can today to be pro-social and start to build a sense of shared belonging in the extraordinary diversity that is Fremantle. Absolutely. And it is that idea that, you know, not just Indigenous culture, but all people have come to Fremantle in a way as a meeting place and recognising even during COVID, it was interesting how many people almost without anyone else being around came to Fremantle as a place to connect and meet. Yeah. And it did create obviously a whole lot of other issues around antisocial behaviour as a result of it. Yeah. But it was just interesting that they chose this place as a place to come to, to create almost a sense of belonging, but yet sometimes we don't allow the space for people to, to do that. And, you know, you have touched on an issue that is outside of our workplaces in many ways, but is a big issue that's, that does impact Fremantle and, mm. and requires a similar sort of thought when anyone, back to Tony's point, feels on the outside and doesn't feel that sense of belonging. It's very hard to feel happy in yourself and to greet the day with any form of enthusiasm. I just want to relate that to one piece of Aboriginality. Until I was 16, it was legally not possible to be Aboriginal and Australian. By law, if you were Aboriginal, you were not Australian until then. So that sense of rejection <laughs> is really strong in our whole mindset. The whole mindset of Aboriginal people don't belong. Till I was 16, that was law. Yeah, so, anyway. Yeah, no, it is. And Tim, you often talk about connections and understanding. And part of that is that storytelling. How else within our workplaces do you think we can create that more effectively? Um, the, the process of building trust anywhere is about awareness of what people have been through. It's also about acknowledgement of what they've been through. And then it's doing whatever it takes to repair the damage that has been created by what they've been through. Those, for me, are the kind of three steps. So the workplace... Are you talking about in relation to Aboriginal Just people? Just cultural diversity in general or Aboriginal people? Yeah, the, the starting point... These guys have said it. The starting point is actually at least educating ourselves about the truth um, of what people have been through. That, that matters at a national level, it matters at a personal level. Um, and then the second point is really acknowledging that and, and then understanding how that might have affected our mindset because I know that I carry in my bones attitudes that are created over three to four generations that I have to kind of almost wash out. Do you know what I mean? So, so that, that awareness is not just about awareness of what Aboriginal people have been through, but awareness of how our mindset has been created. And you often hear it, don't you, that, that kind of line of, well, we've all talked about this, let's just, you know, move on and, and be done with it. And I think you're right, in any situation or any trauma of any kind, 
people aren't done until they're done, you know, and I think it's giving people that space to, to move through that and understand it because when you're pushing it away to move on, it means you probably haven't dealt with it either. <laughs> you kind of jump And white through. guilt gets in the way of that. We, <laughs> we want to, we sort of think it's about guilt and actually it's about shared connection. It's a really interesting point. And these are really challenging topics to get right. I think, you know, even as I'm asking questions now, you know, you, you are filtering and thinking, am I saying the right thing? Is this culturally appropriate? You know, all of those things. And sometimes we do just need to pull it right back to, as Tony said, just get to that point of storytelling and understanding and maybe less worry about whether we're saying the right thing or doing the right thing, but genuinely put ourselves out there to listen. If I may, I, think yeah, I just want to... Cognizant of time and that. No, no, the, the issue of what well. Tim brought up in that, you know, rather than approach somebody in a way that suggests that, you know, they don't belong or whatever. Well, I've, I've got a brother. Uh, his name's Eugene. Now, um, I went through 16 institutions before I was 14, having been taken from my mother. And the fallout from that has been quite horrific. It's taken a lifetime to deal with the emotional fallout, the bitterness and the sadness and the anger. And I had a, had a very, very good friend of mine who's actually in the audience today and uh, came up to me one day and he said, oh, I met Eugene. I went, what? He goes, no, your little brother, Eugene. I was thinking, wow, how does he know him? Because uh, Eugene went through a lot of what I went through, but he's ended up homeless. And uh, he lives at the Perth train station and literally begs every day. And any sense of help that I can try and you know, afford to him, it's been quite difficult. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here is that rather than walk past him and have some judgmental positioning, this friend of mine walked up to him and said, hello, how are you? You know, I'm, I'm Ian. And he goes, oh, OK. He says, oh, yeah, uh, who, who's your family? And Eugene goes, oh, you know, I've got Tony, he's my brother. He says, oh, I know Tony. So there ensured this conversation, and uh, it was really great. It taught me a big lesson. I actually took a step or two back, thinking, wow. Um, and a lot of people could probably take a leaf out of that book, because um, our people have suffered a lot. Um, but, you know, we are good people. So that one really taught me a lesson. We were, um, it just reminded me a little bit of a story, Tony, too. We were walking through um, the Doorstep Dinners project with the CEO of Mindaroo recently, and that was the project where we got a number of our restaurants through COVID to cook meals for, for people in need who couldn't get out of their houses and things. And Mindaroo had come on board very strongly to support us. And we were walking through, and this homeless guy came up to Michelle, I, and, and the rest of Mindaroo and goes, I am the sexiest homeless man in Australia. <laughs> And you need to give us some cash. And I thought, we all just took, it was so wonderful and just so, you know, it took all of us by surprise. But just immediately that bond of engagement was just fantastic. So you're right, sometimes we just need to look a little bit outside the box. And again, it helps when someone else comes and tells you their story in such a frank and honest way as well. And on that note, Kieran, I'm going to pop over to you before I waffle on any further. Um, Kieran is the co-founder and partner of the Fulcrum Agency, a creative consultancy that leverages community and social outcomes through evidence-based design, strategy, research and advocacy. Kieran's portfolio includes urban design and architectural projects that have been awarded by the Australian Institute of Architects across commercial, public, urban design, interiors, education and residential categories as well as winning the Australian Award for Urban Design and an International Award for Public Participation. His writing has been published on topics covering urban renewal, Indigenous housing and new models of practice and procurement. Kieran is currently leading a series of projects with Indigenous communities on the Groot Archipelago in the NT and Mirindjabra in New Queensland. 
Both of these projects seek to improve the quality of life through better housing and community infrastructure. And Kieran is also working with the NT government to deliver Room to Breathe, which is a program that empowers individuals and communities to play a leading role in determining their housing futures. Kieran, one of the reasons I asked you here today was we've talked a lot about reconciliation and cultural perspectives, and so much of our interactions with people take place in spaces, um, and particularly in workspaces. Um, how do we create spaces and places that reflect understanding and help connect these aspirations within our workplaces? Uh, <clears throat> well, thanks for having me, inviting me. And um, I'd like to just start by paying my respects to the Indigenous people in the room uh, and to the country that we meet on. You know, I often say when we, I start talking about um, that the land here was never ceded. And one of the challenges of this notion of not ceding land is that, um, the, in a sense, the cities are, if we talk about stories, the cities are kind of built stories of the victor, typically. The kind of, um, the way in which cities are, have been built over millennia, uh, or any settlement really, but primarily if we're talking about cities, is that people come in, they effectively erase what was there before, uh, and build something that tells their story. So I think one of the challenges, um, and this conversation around stories I think underpins this, you know, when we practice, I guess we're kind of informed by this notion um, of stories. And I quite like um, uh, Noel Pearson's description of Australia of being built on three stories, the kind of ancient story that continues today, um, the kind of British colonial story that gave us much of our governance system and, in a sense, much of our kind of contemporary city that we understand, and the more recent migrant story, which brings a kind of level of multiculturalism to the country. And I think in Fremantle, what you have is the opportunity to see all of those things, but you only see one built outcome, which is the British colonial system. So even though we have a place here just on the you know, port, in which almost every migrant that came to Western Australia or Australia passed through at some point, the kind of reflection of those stories is really limited to the plaques and potentially some of the shop names in the city. And even though we have a place which was occupied for you know, tens of thousands of years as a kind of an important place, the only trace of those places or the only trace of those stories is in either narratives or plaques or something else. It's very limited. So, the kind of one story, in a sense, which binds all of those things is, is this kind of colonial story. There's a kind of Cartesian logic to the city of a grid and, you know, the church lines up with the prison and the town hall lines up with the hill and all that other stuff. And that sort of maps out the place. And what that does is a few things. The first one is that it's very difficult to come back to this kind of notion of social, pro-social, anti-social. Um, it's very difficult to kind of foster a sense of belonging without a strong sense of acknowledgement, I think, without people sort of being acknowledged that this is their place. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I think that is really challenging. And so without a level of kind of acknowledgement that this place belongs to a, a, you know, a whole range of people, it's a very challenging place to kind of then tell someone they belong. Yeah, that's <laughs> When so you true. meet them, right? The kind of physical space. And urban designers over, the last 50 years have really attempted as much as possible to develop systems and built forms 
which discourage certain types of activity, primarily activity that's not shopping or travelling to and from work in cities. So if you're shopping, no problem, the city will welcome you. If you're coming to and from an office building, the city will welcome you. Um, but if you're coming to the city to sit and have lunch or to gather and meet your uncle and aunt or to, you know, do anything else really, the city does not welcome you. City's been designed expressly to try and limit that type of behaviour. Um, there are principles around reducing the depth of laneways or you know, the openings to buildings, ensuring that light is pumped into spaces at night time so no one can sleep comfortably out of the wind or in the, you know. People play music on train station platforms, they design park benches that you can't sit on them comfortably for longer than five minutes. The city is designed, actively designed, to try and reduce the level of engagement by anyone else who's not shopping or arriving for commerce. And so to unpick that is a big challenge. Um, I think there's a kind of societal behavioural system that could help unpick that. But the physical infrastructure is very difficult to unpick. So that's, I guess, the first part of the, the answer. The, the bit that you're talking about is what happens in a workplace setting, you know, once we get past the front door of a building. And again, those um, places typically rely on a kind of a model of, um, in a sense, a societal norm of what work is. You know, what do we do when we arrive? What are the things that we do? Interestingly, I think this pandemic has changed a lot of our own conversations around what that even is, what it might mean. But I think in terms of workplace, what has, in my profession, in particular in the built environment, it's a very narrow window of people. The people who can afford to be professionals in this space can already, um, and I say that because it's a very poorly remunerated profession, but it's a, <laughs> uh, people who can afford to be in that profession, um, in a sense, come from a sort of fairly small slice, right? Even though the impact and influence that we have as a discipline is very broad, you know, city building, buildings, you know, spaces, urban park, all sorts of things, the actual constituent groups of the, of the practitioners is very narrow. Um, I, I'll tell you one quick story about that, that there was a, an architect who came from Iran um, and she applied for a whole range of positions, very experienced architect, didn't get one interview. And a friend of hers said, change your name on your CV, right? I can't remember exactly what her last name was now, but you know, change it to like Smith or something, which she did. And then she got four interviews and she got a job, right? And so there's this thing which is built into your bones, this notion that actually, you know, we just hire people that are like us and we like to work with people that are like us, whatever that us is, you know. Um, is a kind of system that's very difficult to manage. So one of the challenges in workplaces is this notion of bias and the challenge of listening deeply to other people's stories and what that might mean to the way that you might practice or think about your workplace. So I think for me it's less to do with the spaces that are designed and more to do with the leadership of the people who run the buildings um, or the spaces or whatever it happens to be, the city. Uh, in terms of doing two things, one acknowledging that there is a level of, um, the, acknowledging the truth is the first bit, acknowledging the truth of people's stories when they arrive and acknowledging the impacts of the city that they have 
the impacts the city can have on their own personal behaviours. And then being able to actually listen, actively listen, um, without waiting to jump in, like Tony said, in a gap, or without waiting to try and work out, okay, how am I going to respond quickly to this person who's telling me this story about whatever it happens to be, but just actually listen. I mean, that's quite a tricky, it's a, it's a hard skill. And it's not a skill typically that business leaders have. They're very used to making kind of command and control type decisions and effectively kind of mobilising to do certain things in certain ways. So, you know, we talk a lot in the practice when we work in community around empowerment and it's a kind of often spit like reconciliation, you know, it's a kind of word that's tossed around a bit, a bit too much in my opinion. But the notion in a sense of empowerment is there has to be a transfer of power for it to work. And maybe like two is saying there's a kind of two-way exchange that occurs in those situations. And so in workplaces, to genuinely empower conversations like that, leadership has to kind of give something up. And that's really hard. And that's why governments find it hard, <laughs> because they're not designed to give up power. You know, they're a system that's designed to kind of cement power. So I think, you know, there's a lot, you know, I guess I'm bouncing all over the place, but I think there's a lot that's within the kind of physical infrastructure that has effects on people's behaviours and, and a sense of belonging that I think we can do more towards healing. And I think there's attitudes within workplaces that are more important than the workplaces themselves. It's a really interesting point. Uh, so many of them, Kieran, it was a really intriguing conversation and particularly around our city designs and where we allow places for people to gather and to be and belong, as you've said so well. And it prompted me to think a little bit about, um, I don't know if many of you have been upstairs to the Shipwreck Museum here, and they have these intriguing boxes that they pulled out last week of just people's stories. And there's this amazing story of a Japanese pearler up in Broome who patented the first um, weighted um, diving suit and then got arrested and put in jail during the Second World War and he ran a local picture store. And, but he had, in each of these boxes, they just have 10 items that represent someone's story and they pull them out. And it's such an intriguingly simple concept, but as you've said, so far removed from a plaque, it's actually, these are just some pieces of someone's life, some pieces of someone's story. And in his box, they literally had a camera, some pictures of, of Broom, um, his boots from the diving, the patent from the US. And just in those simple five or six things in a box, you actually heard someone's story. And I think it's so powerful to take a step back sometimes and, and get beyond you know, what we just see on the surface. It did lead me to think what I don't know if I'd put in my box <laughs> to tell the story. But, um, can I just also say, yeah. if, if people listening own a shop or something that they're concerned is um, being harmed by what they see as antisocial behaviour, part of my point is actually if you want to address that, listen to stories. That's what addresses it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, do. Um, I, I knew a bloke once who had a shop, I think it was over in um, Karawara, and he just made a point of building relationship with the young fellows around there. And his shop was the only one that didn't get bombed with graffiti. Mm. It's very simple. Build a relationship, you know, and, and yeah, Jared O'Brien tells another great story about some young boys around one of his shopping centres regionally and he just got them, you know, put a few of them to work every now and again yeah, and yeah. what a difference it actually yeah, just made to that really engagement. Mm. Um, 
Kieran also made a really important point, I think, around privilege and power um, in the workplace. Tony and Tweet, privilege and power obviously is a big issue and understanding, I guess, the privilege that as you know, white people working into a workplace or that we carry without even recognising it. How do we start to address, one, the privilege that we carry without knowing it and, two, I guess, address a more evenness within workplaces from your perspectives? I, I, think, I think the first step is understanding your unconscious bias because most people don't understand their unconscious bias. And I'll give you a really good example of someone who, who works in, you know, worked in government for a long time and in 2018 I had to introduce my, uh, my older sister to my mother. She was stolen, first child stolen. So if you, if you work in an environment where you've not really had anything to do with Aboriginal people and you think you know, you know it all, and suddenly you've got someone in front of you who says yes, you kind of got to understand, one, the cultural obligations that I might hold, and two, the emotional trauma that I have to go through. And the other thing was I was actually working on an Aboriginal project at the time. So it takes leadership for someone in your organisation to help you with the cult, you know, getting all those things in place to make it, you know, easy for you to go to work the next day. So I literally, you know, my sister flew from Melbourne, sort of went into the work, you know, I introduced my mum in Kalgoorlie and then I had to sort of come straight back to work. But luckily I had an amazing boss who's like, you need to take a couple of days off, you know, like just take that time off. So I think if you have people in the workspace who can step into that space and, and understand, they might not get and understand it fully, but they certainly should have empathy, a really deep sense of empathy to go, I don't know this, but I know it's traumatic, is probably a really good step. Um, and then the other bit is also understanding where your organisation fits within the broader scheme of all the organisations in Australia. So how does our organisation, you know, Help our help everyone in our work environment understand that we we you know we stand on you know on on Wajak country here anyway you know or we're in Wajalup right now. What does that mean for us? I, I can handily put my hand up and say I'm a bit embarrassed. I don't know any of the local stories from here at all. I know enough about the Roundhouse and the Maritime Museum because as you said, it's all here. It's you know these grand structures, but I I don't know those things. And you know if I worked here. In, in Fremantle, in Wayalup, I'd want to know those things. So I think a really good leader in that organisation would take that step to make their employees understand that you're standing on someone else's country. Absolutely. Tony, did you have anything you wanted yeah, to add to that? I am. Um, I'm a quite a simple kind of guy. I find it very, very difficult to read and write. Um, and uh, I don't know, I have a ferocious need to listen and to hear people's stories and to go from there. But I sort of compare Western Outlook in terms of, I guess, what's important in life to what's important for us as, uh, as Aboriginal people. And keeping simple on it is very important because when people listen to something for the first time, we, this starts to turn over, you know, as humans' mindset does. And you get very, very analytical. And what happens there is actually you bog yourself down to a point where you can't move. So you've got to take yourself out of there and understand the fundamentals of the situation that you're going in for the first time. So I look at our Western society and there's kind of and you put put society into an apex, and you look at the foundations of that apex. And one of the things that I've kind of uh, come to understand, particularly in terms of a commercial Western sense, is that foundations, in order to actually be a success in life, is firmly embedded in the dollar symbol. You know, um, and you, you go to the next. Uh, building block in what is deemed to be, you know, a journey towards success, and that is nothing other than um, more money. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So you know, uh, and you get a bigger to a, house and a bigger structure. Yeah, yeah you, get, you get to a point of um, assets that come from all of that money. And check this, here's a great exercise. You go out for dinner, to dinner with five people you know nothing about. Trust me, you'll drive home that night knowing exactly what three of them have. <laughs> True, because society, and in particular here in Perth, because I see it all the time, is people have a purchase for throwing out what they have, all right? So you'll be driving back and going, oh, Tim, I met him for the first time. What a great bloke, he's got a big uh, a speedboat. He says, I can go and use it on the swan at any given day. Oh, and that's going from his beach house down at uh, um, Fremantle there. Uh, and look, he says, I can go and use it any time I want. So, oh, I'm going to do that. Oh, but that, 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 not, not to mention his uh, holiday house down at Margaret River, you know. <laughs> Man, Tim's a very good bloke, you know. And, you. Do, you know do you know what I'm going to do next time I see Tim? I'm going to have a cup of tea with him. I'm going to ask him every question I can in the world because I want to be just like Tim. <laughs> because he is what is deemed to be a success. People tend to listen to others based on what they have. Not who they are. Yes, as opposed to their story and genuinely where they're from and where they fit and all of that kind of stuff. So I compared that outlook in terms of success in life to the way that we as Aboriginal people look at it. And I presented this to my elders on a readily basis and not too many of them disagree, to who to, to, to he might. But, um, you know, you, you, just, you look at those four elements of achieving success, and do you know what the number one foundation stone is for us as Aboriginal people to achieve success? It's nothing other than knowledge mm -hmm. and knowing who you are, all of those stories that come with your culture. You can actually use that for others too, you know. Um, and I guess that the, the second element then boils down to nothing other than sharing, sharing that knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that's where we've fallen down as Aboriginal people through no fault of our own that being taken from one's culture and knowledge suggests you don't have the ability to share it to others, right? Uh, and what happens there is that you'll have young Aboriginal people, particularly today, who are coming up through, through the ranks, per se, that don't have the knowledge about their culture, who they are, where they fit, and all of that sort of stuff. So you'll have 20, 30, 40, early 50-year-old Aboriginal people walking around in circles not knowing who they are. From that point there, you actually get to a point of understanding and knowing what's important in life, you know? And so not having an understanding of what's important in life even that exacerbates things, you know. Um, but you get all those things in place, and that's why there's been a lot of work put on Aboriginal people now for them to start sharing their culture a lot more. And um, I know from my experience, uh, you know, through all of the horror that we went through, and that started out at the Heathcote Mental Asylum as a three-year-old, um, that it's been a lifetime to get that knowledge back. Mm -hmm. You know, I, reasonably, I speak my language reasonably fluent, you know, um, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, have a sound understanding of where our sites are and what they mean and everything, and it makes me feel really, really great. Sharing with my people on a, on a, on a, on a regular basis and with others, listen, I'll, I'll tell you that I've learnt a lot from my very good Aboriginal, uh, non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters. They've taught me you know, how to go about life a little bit better. But ultimately, in human being, once they have those things in place, they get to a point of success, which isn't about power, you know, in terms of what you have, it's very much along that line of wisdom, knowing what to do at the right time to keep things going the right way. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think if we harp back to that a little bit more, and I have very good friends of mine who are very successful businessmen that actually do that, mm. not really knowing it. 
you know. And it's, it's a big lesson to learn, but it's actually the fundamentals of how we get succeed in life, really. Absolutely, and it's been interesting during COVID, I think, because it's hit so many people quite unevenly. And I, I had a, a you know, really successful gentleman who lost you know, work through COVID saying, my job has always been to protect and care, and I don't know who I am if my job's been taken away and I'm no longer in that role. But you're still who you are, you know, that's the one bit no one can take away from you and I think there's a great lesson in that in our workplaces, definitely. Can I respond yeah, to that? Yeah, go for I, it, I'd love just to think hear it. so important. Um, what Tony was saying about the dollar, it, it, this is our cultural wound. Like, early on in my work in the reconciliation space, I, I realised that the more mysterious thing was understanding my culture, the Wadjala culture. Um, and years ago, I was working in um, the northern suburbs doing social planning, and I actually ended up writing a paper called How Do We Plan in a Culture That's Lost? Because we have lost our sense of what really, really matters. Um, and I, when I look at some of the older writings from my own culture, it's not all about the dollar. But when you're lost, you just want one measuring stick. So <laughs> there it is, it's That's the dollar, it. you know. Um, and, I, and linked to that, I think this is linked, but it's something I want to say, I guess, that, that whole belonging cycle, um, I talked about making sure everybody belongs within our culture. We also got to do what it takes to genuinely belong to this country. We act like we don't belong to this country. And that creates all sorts of damage. And Aboriginal people have this, you know, having had everything taken, still the generosity to reach out and say, we actually want you to belong. And part of our question that we've got to ask really deeply is what am I going to do to accept that welcome? I don't want to just listen to it. I want to think, OK, I'm being welcomed. What does that actually mean for me more deeply? And I would encourage any business to be thinking about uh, way more than just the dollar in terms of why they exist. And why people come every day into those spaces yeah. and, and for the variety of reasons that they do, absolutely. I mean, I think, sorry, the, I think the thing is, and I had an interesting lunch last week um, and there were a few uh, interesting people at the, at the lunch and they, one of the conversations was this transition, the opportunity of connecting to this country and actually belonging and moving from conversation to action, like actually acting on what the intent of, you know, belonging here. And in a sense, the, the one, one, a comment was made by one of the people there that struck me that said, you know, in many respects, maybe it's this sort of, we lost the empire, the British empire, right? Back in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, I don't know when that happened exactly, before my time, anyway. We lost that, which was a kind of grounding moment of culture for people here. There was a connection, there was a strong idea of who, who you know, non-Indigenous people were, white people were in this place, they were part of a, an empire. And that obviously has dissipated over time and there's been this kind of loss of identity potentially around that and a loss of cultural kind of capacity, you might say. And now, in a sense, the whole time we've had this opportunity to connect to the actual place, the culture that's here, that was here first. Um, but that takes quite a bit of effort, like beyond, you know, the smoking ceremony and the this and the that. It actually takes effort to do because you have to work out a way that where you can feel like you do belong and engage and act, you know? And that, I think, is a really interesting premise because, you know, that is the sort of opportunity. I think one of the reasons why we do have more of these conversations is 
there is a yearning for a connection. You know, like Tony said, the bottom piece of the, of the triangle, or whatever shape it is, the bottom piece, the kind of foundation is this knowledge of who you are and where you belong. And if you have lost that connection back to some other homeland, um, then you have to find it some other way. But you have to actually work for that a little bit. It just doesn't just happen naturally, you know, like you have to actually try and go and talk to people, connect to the country, spend time, do things, repair country, regenerate, you know, like there are actually actions that you can do to do that, that bind you more strongly to a place. So I think those are the things that need to happen in a way. This kind of loss needs to be counted. Absolutely, and understanding it was so um, interesting. I was reading Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe a couple of weeks ago, and even I could almost feel my brain kind of turning over as the, he was talking about, you know, the, the fact that the sheep and cows that we introduced all went first and basically destroyed a whole lot of country that in a way no one else had ever seen other than, you know, the traditional people who were there or, and saw that damage coming through like a tidal wave. And you suddenly do start to reframe and rethink about our land and our place in a way that none of us have ever seen it other than in some ways in um, the stories that have been passed through. So that connection to land and that connection to the spaces we're in. And even on a tiny thing, seeing the scaffolding come down off Arthur's head and even recognising that as such an important part of our story within Fremantle that we kind of just let fall into disrepair. It's really important that we have some form of connection to some of those spaces and places and people. Kelly, is there anything coming through? That's okay, good, because I can keep going down my long list of questions. Um, there's a lot of talk, I guess, about how part of the repair process is to in encourage and engage and create diversity within our workplaces. And from, an, I guess, an Aboriginal perspective, a lot of that over the years has been internships, training programs, you know, cultural awareness programs. How important do you think those sorts of initiatives are to help create fairer balance within the workplace? Or is it more of this internal understanding and search for knowledge that will enable us to create the change? To creating change is very much centred around awareness. Mm. And I, I always say that don't underestimate the power of sharing your stories in terms of, say, without our people, not to suggest we're any different, uh, uh, cultural awareness is a very important element of the process, mm. you know. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was presenting to the Maritime Unions of Australia, the MUA, and they're an interesting <laughs> bunch, bunch of people. But they're, they're just down here off the harbour. Yeah. And... Um, uh, I, was, I was there presenting one day because they had a, 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 an opportunity. It was about, all up was about 200 of them and I, soon I'll be doing about 300-odd staff with regards to the Fremantle ports. But uh, th th this, this guy came up after one of the presentations and he was a very, very large gentleman. And he came to me and he goes, look, Tony, can I talk to you? And I had a bubble thought. You know how we always have these bubble thoughts about people? You know, you're thinking this, but you're saying that. Um, I, I, I said, yeah, but, you know, strangely enough, I'm agoraphobic. You know, people don't understand that I don't like crowds and that. And I, I thought to myself, oh, do I really need to talk? And uh, I said, yeah, uh, what, what's up? And this guy had tears, you know, and I said, what's wrong? And he said, oh, look, I just want to let you know that I really appreciated today's session because I was a copper in Leonora between 1984 and 1986. And he goes, I know your mother. I went, mm, another bubble thought. 
careful here. Um, and her name was Gadadi, which is the Ngandarawangatha language. It means teeth, because she shared her story by yelling all the time. <laughs> so I was baring her teeth. And uh, I've got a friend here, <laughs> true story, go, go figure. So anyway, we I've had a friend of mine in the audience, we actually flew up one time and went to see her on the, on the, on the village slash reserve, where you had to be after five o'clock back in the day, because we weren't allowed in town. Um, and she, he went up and shook her hand and said it was a pleasure, pleasure to meet you, which I always remember. But um, uh, he goes, yeah, I know your mother. And uh, knowing full well what they did to her, the police, she was beaten, she was imprisoned, she had all this manner of stuff that was just quite horrific for her. She goes, um, uh, and I really appreciate what you've talked about uh, because if I'd have known what you've shared today back then, we would have treated her differently. We just all thought she was mad. And, you know, I, was, I, I, I didn't know what to say from that point other than to say, look, I, I appreciate your honesty, but I just want to let you know that it's OK, you know. So she had no right of recourse, having eight of us taken from her. She ended up homeless on the street and was judged ferociously all her life for the behaviour that came out of that. But I thought about it through my life and I thought, well, any woman that would have had their children taken from, from her uh, with no accountability or right of recourse would have been behaving exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. So what I saw there was, and I say this with respect to Tui and Tim, was what reconciliation is truly about. Because reconciliation is about, you know, having a bust-up with a friendship or a partnership. Now, I don't think Aboriginal people or non-Aboriginal people, particularly in this state of Western Australia, have been in a friendship and partnership to start with, yeah. to let alone be in a situation of reconciliation. How can you reconcile with someone or something you know nothing about or had any, nothing to do with? Everybody goes, you're right, you know? Um, but uh, reconciliation is about an individual who sees an opportunity for them to reconcile about something within their life that they're not too happy about or proud about and when the opportunity arises, steps up and says something. Do you know what I mean? So I saw reconciliation right there and then for what it truly was. Someone who's willing to stand yes. up and note the change. Yeah, that yeah. so look, this is what's happened in my life and I don't feel too proud about that. Hopefully moving forward I can be a better person, you know. So let's temper this reconciliation stuff. Let's get out there more about this conciliation stuff. Mm -hmm. And if we come together as a partnership and a friendship over the next generation, because you've got to understand that if you go back to 1967, that we headed, headed into a Labor um, a government. We were headed up by one of our best Prime Ministers at the time, uh, Gough Whitlam. Unfortunately, you know, he was <laughs> had to resign. But um, uh, he said something way right at the very beginning where his first act was he jumped into a plane and he flew to the Northern Territory and he went out to Wave Hill and he went and addressed the Aboriginal people out there in their 40-year fight for recognition, for land, wow. land rights and fair wages and so forth. And he picked up sand from the ground and he poured it into Vincent Nanyari's hand, the 80-odd-year-old elder that fought for it for so long, and he said, this is your land back. Uh, Paul Kelly and Kevin Carmody immortalised it with From Little Things, Big Things Grow, the song. You know, but what Whitland forgot to say at that time was that we are now heading out on a journey. Sorry, he first said, Australia can't move forward as a nation of people until Aboriginal people take their rightful positionings. But he said, uh, but what he should have said too was that we're heading out here on a journey that finishes in five generations' time. So we're one and a half generations into that journey. Uh, and we're just dusting ourselves off as a groupings of people, but we're still judged, we still receive vitriol and ridicule about how is it that we're not engaging, you know, and people really don't understand the enormity of what we've been through to be here to stand up and say, look, we want to address this story. Mm 
And it's as simple as that. That's fantastic points, thank you. Um, I'd love to ask each one of the panel just as we walk through, if you were to pick one thing that you'd like to see every business, small or large, adapt to encourage better understanding in the workplace, what would it be? Could I start with you, Karen, on that one? Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> one, I mean, sorry, I, I really, yeah, the one thing. I mean, there's so many things, really. Mm. I, I think, um, you know, for, for our business, which has operated here in Frio for, you know, a long time, 20 years or something, it's still a relatively um, new journey for us to kind of engage more fully with the diversity of, you know, what, where we live and, and the places we practice. And it takes a lot of kind of constant vigilance to make sure that you're not just falling back into sort of bad habits. I, I, don't, I don't know what the kind of one thing that you would do. I mean, I've done a lot of cross-cultural training in training on country and training with lots of different communities. Um, and I think those things are quite useful. Um, but I think that there, you know, most of it comes back to kind of starting from a position of kind of knowing who you are. Um, you know, I'm, I'm like token Asian on the panel, right? Because you got you got enough. You got you got plenty. You got plenty of black fellas. You got a couple. You got a wadula. And you're the token white guy, and I'm the token Chinese guy. And um, uh, so um, I kind of token chick. Yeah, yeah. And I so I acknowledge my place in that order, um, and sort of understand what that means. And I think that yeah. So you, I think for me, it's. You know, the thing that you need to, like businesses need to do is sort of understand their role within a kind of broader supply chain, I suppose that's one thing, and think about the impacts and influence they can leverage out of the way they practice, right? So there's lots of things you can do beyond just buying your stationery from an Indigenous-owned stationery supplier. Like that's, I mean, that's great, but, and I think we should encourage that, but, you know, what are that kind of things that you do in your business, like the, the, whether it's a retail business or a professional services business or a whatever business where you can amplify impact, right? Um, but ultimately it relies on a kind of mission and a purpose. So you, you know, I think, and that starts typically with leadership of the businesses saying, this is going to be our mission, you know? <laughs> um, and, and then work out ways that you can amplify from there. So, yeah, I think, and that's, yeah, I'd love to be able to give you the, the one answer that you need, oh, all businesses need to great. do, but it's, I don't know if there is one. I think it's a kind of personal approach. Um, and I think yeah. setting that mission and that kind of understanding of where we can will make that difference. And I think, you know, even in your smaller, relatively small agency compared to a lot of larger companies, you know, you've explored cadetships, you're out doing cultural awareness, you're working on projects that you choose to work on to make a really big difference. Yeah. Your supply chain, where you can, you're making a difference. You know, it's that first decision to look for opportunities where you can make that difference and then apply it to your projects, to your supply chains, to your workforce. It's all of those things that you've summed up really, really well, Karen. Thank you for that. I'm aware of time. Um, no. So um, you've just said the first step. Decide you're going to do it mm. and get serious about it. Um, don't just think, oh, what's in, what's in the uh, um, Australia's Reconciliation Wrap template and I'll tick all those. Decide you're going to do it. And for the sake of brevity, 
Um, we often sum up two-day courses, because I get involved in um, the, the white side of this um, um, reconciliation training. Um, if it was a one-word course, the word would be relationship. So get conscious and get out and build relationship and get relationship into your workplace through employees and through consultants and through procurement and so on and mm. so forth. And just start getting to know each other. Start yeah. with the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Tweed, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I think, I think for the most important thing for people understanding inclusion and diversity in their workforce is understanding the system in which you're born into. It's what you, we touched on too. You don't really understand what your unconscious biases are. I did this amazing workshop which really changed the way I sort of viewed my own unconscious bias. We all sat at a table, there was a set of instructions, we all had to read them, we then played a card game. The winning person from that table then had to go to the next table and you weren't allowed to speak, but unbeknownst to that person, there was a different set of rules at that table. So they went from being a winner to a loser. And the same with that next person had to move to the next set of tables. So it was a really heartfelt way of going, if you end up in a society that you don't actually know what the rules are, you sort of, you know, and a lot of people feel like they don't understand what the rules are and what their role is in that society. So if you can sort of, as a leader, understand that you have your own unconscious biases and how that affects your workplace and how everyone's unconscious bias affects everyone, I think it's a really nice step in sort of understanding inclusion and diversity and where to go from there, looking at your blind spots, basically. What are my own personal blind spots? And we all have them. I've got terrible blind spots. So, you know, I have to put my hand up sometimes and go, I don't know, I didn't realise that was a blind spot. Thanks for pointing it out. <laughs> Absolutely, and what are we attached to hanging on to and not letting go of when deep inside us is a really big part of that, isn't it? Absolutely. Ain't, Tony, ain't started crazy. with you, now I'm going to end with you. <laughs> ain't it crazy? I've gone along all my life thinking I had no bias whatsoever. <laughs> True story, it's an interesting one. It's probably why they call it unconscious. <laughs> you know, I had a good friend that actually <laughs> made me aware, aware, aware of that. Um, and I'd like to point out, until we brought it up in a, in a, when she was speaking uh, uh, earlier on, and she's talking about the issue of leadership within your business. Uh, yeah, you can do all the cultural awareness and so forth, as uh, Kieran was pointing out, and I think it's important to do that. But unless you get down to the nitty gritty and have people that are within the business that are prepared to take on what's needed to take the next step and so forth and so forth, so that everything trickles down to the rest of your team, it'll actually end up nowhere. When you have a look at a lot of these re reconciliation plans, 90% uh, of them sit on the shelf gathering dust. Mm. You know, and you don't really want to be in a situation where that occurs, but rather have people that are active, that are prepared to take the next step, to be mentors and so forth and so forth. You literally get nowhere. Mm. So you've really got to have a, 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 a champion, preferably not Aboriginal, uh, you know, a non-Aboriginal person, and uh, show that you're serious and genuine about any process. That's the way I see it. Absolutely, and be willing. I think, you know, we're not all going to get it right all the time, and it's so important that we just take that step to put yourself into a situation where you are with unfamiliar people or difference and actually just acknowledge that that's okay, that you don't understand it all before you actually walk into the space. And it's the richest journey. Yeah. All those so errors true. take you on the richest journey. Yeah. Absolutely, Tim. Well, panel, thank you ever so much. It's a topic I think I could yarn on most of the day. Is there anything else, Kelly, that we've got to go? Wonderful. Well, thanks again um, very, very much. And to our live audience and to those watching on Facebook and Instagram, thank you all. And to the legendary Chris uh, from Cloud Meetings who keeps us all on track and allows us to be heard. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>